Bobby, you sound terrible. He's shooting us with this death ray. Ah! Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by CodeClimate. CodeClimate's new security monitor alerts you immediately when vulnerabilities are introduced into your Rails app. Sleep better knowing that your data is protected. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash CodeClimate. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, the leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 137 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. James Edward Gray. I'm on vacation. Brian Merrick. Hello. I just threw you in with the rogues. You want to introduce yourself, Brian? My name is Brian Merrick. The uh, reason I'm on here is I wrote a book called Functional Programming for Object Oriented Programmer, which I understand is going to be the topic of this talk. Um, what? That's what we're talking probably- about. That does it. I'm hanging up. <laughs> I th- I thought we were talking about hats. <laughs> and who are you, Chuck? I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. So yeah, we're we're going to talk about this book. Yeah, let's talk about it. So what made you decide yeah. to want to write this book, Brian? Well, that's actually an interesting question. I don't really remember. I had been a Lisp programmer, actually a, an emperor of a Lisp virtual machine in 83 and 84. So I, I was really fond of Lisp, and I liked Clojure at that time mainly because it was a Lisp that looked like it had a chance of succeeding the way so many other Lisps haven't. And the reason for writing the book, I think part of it was that I was interested in LeanPub, the publisher, and their model for doing publishing. So I wanted to play around with that, and it seemed useful to play around with something real. And I think part of it was just that I'm one of those people who figures things out by explaining them to other people. And uh, this was a way to figure out the functional programming part of Clojure, since Clojure, the lisps I'd used back in the 80s, were not functional at all in the in the style they were used, not not like closure is. And I suppose part of it was that in somewhere around I think two thousand and three in my early Ruby days, I had written a book called well, I'd started to write a book a little Ruby, a lot of objects, which was uh uh, written in the style of the little Lisper, now the little schemer. And I had some nice ideas I thought about how to explain Ruby's object model, and it seemed that I could repurpose that whole explanation into something where I could, I guess, kill two birds with one stone, which is one to 
explain closure to people and also second to explain how object models actually work with um, in the kind of the clearest way to explain such things which is to have the readers of the book implement one interesting I would say that uh, you talked there about how your explanations were a big motivation and I will say that's absolutely my favorite part of the book um, there are several sections where you explain uh, concepts that are difficult to get your head around. You know, the Lisp evaluator, uh, recursion, monads, and you have just absolutely the easiest on-ramp to those complex topics. I mean, you know, you, you pretty much had me when in the, early in the book you had uh, pictures of fat, funny-looking birds uh, gobbling things up and puking out results. It was great. <laughs> Thank you. So there are people out there, though, who would uh, they, they would kind of balk a little bit about uh, putting objects into your functional stuff. Did you run into any of that as people read the book? Uh, that's a good question. Like, Do you actually use objects when you use Clojure, out of curiosity? So first question, people haven't balked at that. I think that generally speaking, since it's a book for people who are familiar with object programming, they like that it's ground in something they're used to. And it's it's interesting, I think, to a lot of people how things actually work in something like Java or Ruby under the hood. So I haven't seen a lot of expl- complaints about that. I suppose I might if it were a book for functional programming people, but I'm, I'm very much not going after that audience. And I've already forgotten the second question. It was that when you're programming closure, do you tend to use things like objects? No, not so much. I'm very heavy. Uh, so at the place I work, we have you know your typical JavaScript front end that talks JSON to a Rails thing, that talks JSON to other things that live behind it. And we are pretty much using the style of just accepting the fact that you know JSON is arrays of hashes, and that's what comes from the front end. And we're pretty much persisting that all the way through to the services and then back again to the front end without going to the step of putting, you know, converting that JSON into some sort of object of some sort of explicit class. So we're passing hashes around all over the place. Uh, that's pretty much my style of programming in Clojure and increasingly now in Ruby as well. When I use something approaching objects, I tend to, maybe just because I'm old-fashioned, I use uh, the multi-methods that Clojure has. And multi-methods are, from an object-oriented point of view, you can think of, instead of just switching on the type of the object uh, to decide method to actually invoke, you can switch on the type of the object as well as any property of any of the arguments. So you tend to get things that can act like objects, but you're not really thinking of them, I think, the same way as you think of objects. In fact, in the old... Um, Lisp literature, they tended to call those things generic functions rather than things that talk to actual objects. 
There are closure programmers who who do in fact make use of the fact that closure turns into Java under the hood and will use some closure features that lets them essentially create classes and instances of those classes, albeit without inheritance. I don't like that because I think it makes the code more awkward to use. And it seems to be primarily used. I think the the good excuse for using that is just for uh, speed. And I'm trying not to care that much about speed, at least until some profiler forces me to care about it. So no objects, not really. Brian, one of the things I liked about this book is that unlike a lot of the functional programming literature out there, it's coming from the perspective of someone who actually has a fair amount of object-oriented experience and not just academic experience. Uh, so you're not coming at it with just a, like a surface-level idea of objects. My understanding, I mean, obviously you've spent a fair amount of time in the Ruby community doing Ruby code. I understand you've also done uh, some small talk as well, right? Uh, very little small talk, very long time ago. Okay. Uh, I was a graduate student of Ralph Johnson's, who is one of the people who wrote the Design Patterns book, and I was sort of the odd man out in his group because they were all small talkers, and I was the common lisp guy. Okay. All right. Is it fair to say that you have spent a fair amount of time writing software with objects? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought, because I mean... In reading this book, you didn't use any of the really egregious straw man arguments that I've seen made about, you know, objects versus functional programming uh, that I've seen other places. So I'm curious, okay, obviously you, you did start out with some common list background, but I'm curious, having done objects for a while, what was it that drove you to start, you know, writing your new code in Clojure again? So back in the 80s, when I was uh, so much a fan of Common Lisp, a lot of the reason for that was that Lisp is a so-called homo-iconic language, which just means that you essentially write the syntax tree of the language directly in the main data structure. So there's no... There's not really a parsing step. Internally, you can think of list programs as being implemented in lists, and that's directly how you write them. And it gives you a, the ability to write code that writes code very easily. And that's in lists, that's uh, what they call macros. So macros essentially give you the ability to write your own DSL, your own domain-specific language, more flexibly even than Ruby does, with the one caveat that it, it has to have parentheses, a lot of parentheses in it. But other than that, it's very nice to be able to write programs that write params. And that was that's the thing that really attracted me most to Lisp, and that's the thing that the main that pulled me over into wanting to use closure in products because I would get the power of lisps. I was not originally sold on the advantages of functional programming per se. There's a the common thing people say, uh, which is that functional programs are easier to reason about. And the people who say that are confounding reason about with proof theorems about. 
It's certainly the case that functional programs are easier to prove theorems about. I was skeptical that that necessarily translated into programs that were more easier to maintain, easier to find bugs in, so on and so forth. I've since come to the conclusion that, yeah, it probably is true uh, that functional programs not having state modification except in very limited, constrained ways really does lead to programs that are easier to understand. And so I started out for the macros, and I guess I stayed for the immutable state, which does actually seem to be paying off nicely. So there's a lot of good things in there. One of the things you said is that you're really attracted to this idea of you know Lisp and, and the way you're, you write in the abstract syntax tree. That's actually one thing I, I think I, I kind of question about this book is the title of the book. It says Functional Programming for the Object-Oriented Programmer. But in some ways, I think it's actually closer to Lisp for the Object-Oriented Programmer. For example... You know, I, there are plenty of functional languages that do not have that property and behave differently. And while, you know, some of these concepts apply to it, you know, others, you know, don't because they don't have that Lisp flavor. Do you think it's specifically the Lisp style of functional programming that you're primarily attracted to? Yeah, actually, I don't, in fact, talk about macros anywhere in the book. So that, I don't think, uh, in a long while since I read it. But I, that, uh, that part of Lisp I don't really cover. Uh, the main place that I would expect criticism that it's really about Lisp and not about functional programming is when it comes to uh, static typing. So in part two of the book, I, I talk at, uh, about these here at work, where you're basically passing hashes around the system, and you think of the hashes as data flowing through the system, and you tack on data uh, as it go, moves through the system, and then at the end, you've got everything you want, and, and you take off pieces of it, and that's your answer. Now that is not a style that works with static typing because those those hashes as they pass through there, they keep getting new fields and in some sense they keep changing their type as they go along. So in something like Haskell, which is very strongly typed, that style of programming wouldn't even be possible. And so I actually have I, I do confess that I've been sort of waiting for some Haskell person to say essentially what you just said, which is, you know, this isn't functional programming at all because it doesn't have types, and that's really important. But I think fortunately for me, no Haskell person has ever deigned to read the book. So <laughs> they haven't noticed. But I think specifically with the question of the how I deal with types, uh, I think that the the reader perhaps should be aware that this is a somewhat Lisp centric style. At least when you're talking about programming, when I talk about programming in the large, 
It's a Lisp style of programming in the large. The programming in the small stuff, I think, applies to pretty much any functional language. I found that that, meta- that metadata annotating stuff that you were doing, the, the what you call data flow, one of the most interesting parts of the book. Um, by the way, I have a minor quibble with the, the naming there, um, because what I know of as data flow pro- programming is a very different thing. Yes, um, it's like like pr- stuff from from Microsoft Excel through like LabVIEW, but basically things that involve streams of events. That's what I think of when I think data flow. But that's a minor thing. And there's um, actually another kind of data flow yet again. <laughs> uh, so yeah, wait uh, a minute. Something in computers means three different things. Come on. <laughs> But it's an interesting approach, and I'll try to describe it quickly for the listeners that, that didn't read the book. Basically, like you have an example where you have a list of college courses, and you're, you're reasoning about what courses are still available and, and whether somebody can, can sign up for a course. And you start off, off with a list of, of courses with some basic information, and then which are just like key values in, in the closure version of a hash. And you run them through a series of functions. Each function is adding new data to that hash. So, like, I'm looking at one now that uh, looks at the course's limit versus the course's number of registered pe- people, and then it adds on a spaces left key to the hash and then returns the new hash with that spaces left key added to it. And it adds on an already in predicate key that notes whether this user is already in, in that course. It's an interesting style. I haven't really seen that before. Is that something that you see a lot of in Clojure programming? I don't really know because I, I don't look at that many other people's Clojure programs that are doing anything at, at scale. It's actually interesting that uh, if you look at Martin Fowler's Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture. Which I do frequently. That's what he calls, I believe, transaction flow. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about that style of you know data you know specific data flowing down through a specific slice of the program and flowing up without ever bothering to put it into objects. And so that's he describes that as one style and and his style you know the style he spends most of the book on is more what we're used to, where data comes in and you turn it into objects, and those objects send messages around to compute data. Now, what he says in that book is, I think, true, which is that that approach starts falling down as you get more and more pathways through the system, and that if you if you tr- you as you try to do it that way, you'll more quickly become overwhelmed by the complexity and that going to the an object style is the way to deal with that complexity. And I have to confess, so I'm getting paid a fair amount of money to do exactly that old-fashioned transaction flow style in this um, suite of apps we're working on. And I keep waiting to, you know, this is the time when we're going to hit the wall and we realize that we can't scale this anymore, uh, that we, we've got to do something more disciplined than tacking on new keys onto hashes. We haven't hit that point yet. I'm willing to believe that we might yet hit that point, and if that happens, then we'll have to do something different, and maybe we'll regret that we waited too long to do that different thing. But, so, uh, this is an experiment. I, I will say one thing, which is that uh, this style seems to me 
pretty heavily dependent on the old idea of tests and examples. Uh, because I was just pairing with one of the people here today. And so you're looking at these things that are flowing through the system. And because they don't have a fixed type, when does it get what key put onto it? And you look at the tests, and the tests are the place that give you specific examples that let you understand what the state of that hash is at a particular point in the in the computation. So I think mm. if you if if we didn't have our tests to back us up, I can easily imagine disaster. That's a really good point. You actually answered my next question before I asked it because looking at, at this style of code, the first thing that springs to my mind is that if I came to a project that used this a lot, when it, would, it had already been in full swing for a while, I would be very confused about you know, which keys are available at any given point in the data flow. What am I expecting that, that data to look like? Because there, you know, I can't go and look at a class definition somewhere that says, okay, here is the list of methods that's available on that object. But the, yeah, that's a good point is that the tests really serve to, to document that. And that's actually a kind of a, kind of, this is a, a tangent a bit, but it's a interesting argument in favor of the, the doc test style tests in Elixir. I've been doing these, these examples in Elixir instead of closure. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it allows you to stick some basic unit tests in sort of a, very much an example format. Basically, you type them up exactly as you would type the code into the, the REPL in the comment right above the function. And it seems like that would be, and then, it, and then it enables you to then run that code as if it were a test. And, and that would probably serve pretty well to document what this function is expecting, what keys this function is expecting to receive. Yeah, I actually have, um, I experimented a fair amount with a still where I actually intermixed the tests and the code. In closure, the tests have to come after the code because you can't use things before they're defined. So you have to read the closure program from the bottom up. And you'd have the ability to just run every test individually. And that would, that's sort of a nod toward literate programming and have, having an example of every function right next to that function. So you're focusing on both the example and the code that makes that example work. I've since drifted to a, a more... You know, the more conventional style of your source code over here and all the tests for it are over there. Yeah, I may be wrong, but I always view that problem of having the function I'm working on and the test visible to me at one time. I always view that as a problem my editor was designed to solve. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It is, however... Yeah, I have a a fairly elaborate editor scheme that's uh, supposed to keep the the tests and the code visible to me at the same time together with another uh, Emacs buffer that shows the running auto-test part. It's Even with that, it's still somewhat difficult to keep them visible at the same time. But I think you're, you're basically right that if you're using a decent editor well, having to intermingle the tests in the code is maybe only slightly an advantage. I want to go back to this concept of data flow for just a little bit because... I do think Opti's right. It was one of the very interesting uh, parts of the book. You talk a lot about the shape of data and, and things like that. I can definitely see lots of advantages to it. So, like, the one that was immediately obvious to me was how great it is for parallelization. So, like, if you have 
you know, just this hash that you start with, and each thing needs to add, like, you know, a few different keys to it to build up to this final calculation or display or whatever, often there's no reason those couldn't happen in some arbitrary order, right? This thing could look at it and add those keys, and then uh, later the other thing could figure out what it needs and add the other keys, uh, you know, and the only thing you have to resolve there is, like, the, the dependencies between the individual tasks, you know? So if uh, these keys depend on some others that get added, then obviously that thing has to come first. But I found that part very cool, but then, you know, uh, I hear you say things like, um, you know, use closures multi-methods so that you can dispatch based on qualities of the uh, parameters and stuff. And then I hear you say that you've gotten to where you do this even in Ruby. And I must say that that surprises me a lot because uh, moving up to a layer like Ruby, um, you don't have things like multi-methods and stuff. So I guess you would actually have to inspect those parameters and basically manage your own dispatch, which then seems like you're trading off most of Ruby's advantages in the object system for something else. So that's just my thinking when I hear you say that. And so I'm curious to hear you tell me how that's not the case. Well, it's not the case. So I, I, I probably wasn't clear about what I carry over into Ruby. I don't use multi-methods in Ruby. For exactly that reason, it's, it's not, it just doesn't fit the language. What I'm using in Ruby is the data flow style of passing hashes around. Uh, that's the main thing that I've carried over into Ruby. So one way to think of that, I, I haven't, I, in other applications, not the one I'm working on now, I've done things like have all my objects descend from either hash or open struct rather than from object so that they can act as hashes, uh, and you can arbitrarily add keys to them. So that's the sort of thing I'm doing in Ruby, not the multi-methods. Uh, one other thing I wanted to comment about what you said earlier, parallelizing. That actually works really nicely. So one of the, one of the programs that I work on is called owl they're all named after animals but its job is to go and and fetch data from lots of different places and consolidate it together and so the first version of that was fetch this from here okay now fetch this from there merge it in fetch this from there merge it in and there's a, a nice package in closure that lets you write in what looks like a linear flow, but in fact, you're writing dependencies between the sources of information and the sinks of the information, and it takes care of the parallelizing for you. And that's a, that's a really good example of the power that you get with macros, because it lets you write something that looks really not that different from the original code, but it gets turned into sort of complicated thing and it was a trivial amount of work for me to do that and I think it was like a 2x speed up because one of the services is the bottleneck so I didn't get a huge speed up for that another thing that in this same application it basically processes a stream of data uh, maps over it or collects over 
it in old-fashioned Ruby lingo. So you just map over it and do things to each element. And there is a, a function in Clojure called PMAP, which does exactly the same thing as map, except it tries to, do, it tries to use up as many heads as it can. And it can, you can safely do that because you know that the data isn't going to be mutated out from under you. And I, so literally in this particular case, I added the letter P to the front of map and it's, I don't remember the exact speed up. It was like 2X or 4X, which is not bad for a single character change, I thought. (laughs) For sure. One of the things that I run into when I'm doing functional programming that uh, I have trouble with, I would love to just get your thoughts on. You have this excellent section in uh, the book on when to name functions and when to name parameters. Uh, And it's just pure gold about, um, you know, the the consequences of when we do and and don't uh, decide to assign names to these things and and that kind of making them appear, you know, just automatic or, or a separate concept and, and when we make that choice. And it's a really great section. But one of the things I run into when I'm doing functional programming is this large proliferation of various kind of similar functions. And I think one of the reasons for this a lot of the times is that recursion itself, uh, or at least the way I do it, and feel free to say it's because you're doing it wrong, is that recursion itself tends to proliferate these large number of functions. Like usually there's the big recursive function, but then almost always I want at least one other that kind of kicks the process off and hands off to that recursive function to set everything up the way it expects it the first time. So I'm curious how you choose names for all of these functions that generate without ending up calling them, you know, recursive thingy one or, or whatever and choosing some lame name for the inner function that's only actually meant to be called by the outer function. Does that make sense? One of the things you said is that, so you have a recursive function and a typical recursive function that's going to do something to a long list of things might have a an accumulator argument that accumulates the changes as they go through. Right. And so the problem is that the the end caller doesn't want to know about those intermediate steps or, or that very first transformation, the caller wants to hand it the function or the list to work with and get the result back. They don't want to pass in an empty so far, use this as an accumulator. Now, essentially, the way the way to do that is to have one function that can take variable optional parameters, which is slightly awkward to do in Clojure compared to Ruby. But so you'll have one function named, you know, do my thing. And if it has one argument, it'll call itself passing in an empty accumulator. And otherwise, it just does the recursive part. And that's like slightly awkward. But once you've seen it a a thousand times, you know exactly what's going on. Did that make sense? Yes. So I think what you're saying is you don't tend to make that second function. Instead, you would do it by just using a default argument or something. 
Yeah. Also, uh, back in the old days, it was very common to uh, have a naming convention for that. So if you had if you had a do my thing entry point, and it called another function that did some setup work, or it it did some setup work, and then called the recursive part, uh, the convention would be my thing and put a star at the end. And everybody knew, oh, I see that. That means this is actually a helper function for a function with exactly the same name without the star. Gotcha. That seems to be common across a bunch of functional languages. I think it, I, I seem to recall it being common to use a, like a single quote prime character in Haskell. And mm-hmm. uh, I think maybe some underscores in, in Elixir, although Elixir makes it a little bit easier to just define another version of the same named function uh, with different arity. Yeah, it's not a bad convention. Uh, uh, for example, uh, one of the apps I wrote uses actors uh, fairly heavily, and so there's a so I want to have a function that sends a message to an actor, and there's another function that is what you'd say is the guts of the actor doing that thing. Right. So I just. Have message a versus method. That, pardon? Message versus method. Yeah. So I, I have I have a naming convention where if you say like send text because this app sends text messages, if it says send text and then I use a, a greater than and a bang, that this is a message. This function just fires, just puts a message on the actor's queue and returns immediately. And the version with a star is the one that's the actual function that takes the state of the actor, transforms it, and produces a new state. And through the power of macros, I just have a a single macro called death message that creates both of those functions for me automatically. And the only code that really needs to know about it is the test code, because the test code wants to run synchronously, not threads and all that crap. Uh, so the test code refers to the functions with the star on the end and not the other kind. So s- just cut all that point out because it's impossible to understand what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> but naming conventions like that do seem to be maybe more common in functional languages where you're sort of, since everything is a function, you, you kind of use little annotations to talk about the kind of role that function plays in the bigger picture, maybe. Kind of along those lines, you have this thing when you're talking about higher-order functions in the book where you actually go back and you implement something in Ruby uh, showing what it would look like using the concept of higher-order functions. And I, I think you just pass a lambda around or something in this particular case. Um, and, and it was interesting to me that you chose to do it that way because you only pass an individual lambda to a method or something. And it seems to me like Ruby optimizes for that being the super common case by making it possible to pass a block to each method, which almost turns into the higher order functions and how Ruby handles them. So I guess my question is, you know, uh, I'm sure uh, we've seen the piece uh, or the claim, I think it was from Paul Graham, that uh, 
Ruby is, you know, almost an acceptable lisp or something. And I was just wondering if you feel that way because uh, of the, you know, the blocks in there and, and the kind of ability to do these sort of higher-order function things. Uh, another example that made me think of it, just to kind of give more context, uh, you're talking about laziness, which we should definitely discuss because it's an awesome part of your book, and how, you know, you can turn some of these iterators into uh, lazy things, and um, Ruby has actually started to pick that up quite a bit in recent versions, and now we have the dot lazy that can just, you know, switch all those iterators and stuff, so I was just wondering if you think it's interesting that Ruby is pulling some of these concepts in. Well, yeah, that. so uh, let me digress for a second. The way I got started at Ruby was I was taking a shuttle bus up to a workshop at the ski resort in Utah, and there were a couple other people there that I didn't know, and we got to talking about it, and they asked me what I was doing, and I said I was picking up this new language called Python, and... And I was kind of liking it, and they turned out to be Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt. And so I was trapped with them on the shuttle bus for 45 minutes, and this was just after the pickaxe books had come, pickaxe book had come out. And so by the end of it, I was had agreed to buy the book. <laughs> I had a, a markedly different experience uh, with Ruby than I had with Python because with Ruby, I guessed the way things would work. I they would work that way, and even things like guessing the function, the name of a method, it would actually be named that. And I, at the time, attributed that to the fact that Ruby had sort of lispy feel. And I have heard, but don't know if it's really true that Matt's had been a Lisp programmer and taken some sort of inspiration for Ruby. D- does anybody know if that's true? So so I have it straight from Matt's mouth that the the largest influence on Ruby is Lisp. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, that makes sense. Matt's is an Emacs user. He, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, the common Lisp object system, I mean, in many ways resembles parts of Ruby's object system, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because I always think of Ruby as being sort of essentially small talk at its heart, but Matt's really cites Lisp as the principal inspiration for it. So I I think I'm not up on the latest versions, so I don't know really that much about the the laziness feature. We're using one nine three, so that's what I concentrate on. I think it's certainly the case that blocks are an optimization for passing around lambdas, an optimization for the human reader and writer's point of view. So I certainly think it's good that these things are coming into Ruby. And and a lot of those things that are coming into Ruby, like laziness, for example, or immutability, those weren't part of Common Lisp back in the day when I was using Common Lisp. And so to to some sense... Uh, Ruby, maybe we could say Ruby was incorporating, you know, the state of the practice or state of the art of Lisp some years ago. Clutter, Lisp, and you know, the the newer functional ideas like immutability and such. And so it's a natural progression that Ruby would begin to acquire those features as well. 
Um, the only, I guess, question is sort of syntax in that, you know, it, 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 it's still awkward to use free-floating lambdas in Ruby because you have to, should this function call have a dot before the parens or not? It's sort of awkward to have these two kinds of things. You got functions and you got methods, and it's easier when you've only got one thing. So I don't know how much the uh, functional style will infect uh, mainstream Ruby programming. That's interesting. Uh, you say you, you haven't really uh, looked too much at the, the newer features and the inclusion of lazy. So um, I've got good news for you. The, um, you know, the description in your book of why to trust laziness and stuff is, is great. It's about how you can just program it in the way that you think is kind of the most natural and then, you know, leave it to the computer to sort out, oh, that's horribly inefficient because you did a map and then a select and then a map. So you're running over the list three times. In current versions of Ruby, I, I believe lazy was added in 2.0. And uh, it's basically like you talked about earlier with PMAP. You can stick a dot lazy in there uh, in the chain, the call chain, and then uh, it returns an enumerator lazy object, lazy enumerator. And um, that object is much like you describe in Clojure, where uh, the ones that it makes sense to do so are rewritten in a lazy fashion. So instead of running through the entire list three times, it builds the pipeline for you and, you know, moves the first item of this list to the first item of that list and on down the chain, and, and you just get these lazy operations for um, a dot lazy call. And I've run into a couple of cases where I've been able to add the dot lazy and, and really make something more efficient or, or uh, save from doing a lot of busy work or something. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that sounds good. One of the, um, the comments that a few people have made, uh, that people that have read the book, is that they felt like it, it really addresses functional concepts in the small really well, um, but doesn't really talk about organizing large functional programs as much. And I'm just curious, where do I go from, you know, let's say I've finished your book, where do I go from there to find out more about organizing large functional programs? Well, when you find out, tell me, because <laughs> I mean, the, the reason that it's weak on that is because I didn't and still, to some extent, don't know the answer to that question. And what I'm doing here in work is since there are basically a lot of small services, the question hasn't really come up either. So maybe part of the end is kind of like Martin Fowler's answer when people ask him, how do you scale agile software development? He says uh, something clever than this, but don't. Uh, keep it <laughs> Scaling should be the last thing you want to do. So maybe the answer is if if you're running into problems with, scaling your functional program, maybe it should be two programs talking over some some narrow channel. But that's, I think, one of the main things I realized when I started learning closure was that a lot of what you get with a, an object-oriented language is you get a ready-made 
organization for your program. So you know where to look for information about this particular object because that object has a class and you know where the functions for that class are. And so with, with a, the occasional exceptions like uh, array or, or hash, there aren't that many functions you have to sort through. But something like closure, you can compare the closure API to the Ruby API. And the Ruby API is nicely organized by classes and sometimes subclasses. And the primary interface to the closure API is this just pile of a thousand or so functions. And how do you find where you're looking for? And that is the problem with large-scale organization. Uh, a guy named Jeffrey Frederick, I think it was Jeffrey Frederick, once said something really wise to me which is that if you're looking for a function in a system that you know must exist somewhere, when you finally find it, move it to the place you first looked. And that I think that's a useful advice for object-oriented code, and it seems to work pretty well. My main open source closure package is Midge, which is a sort of the R-spec in some ways of the closure world. And I followed his advice. I had a lot of trouble organizing it, and I followed his advice. And what I kept finding out was I'd move something to where I looked for it first, and then the next time I looked for that thing, I'd look for it in the place I'd moved it from first, and so the program didn't seem to fall out into an obvious structure. And it's been through three major, I guess you'd call them structural metaphors for how to organize things. And I still don't think I've figured out the right way to do it. So I think the answer is I don't know that we really have a super good idea of how to do that. At least I don't have a super good idea of organization in the large for functional programs. I'm really glad I'm not the only one that suffers from this. <laughs> All right. Well, are there any other aspects of the book that we need to discuss or should we move on to the picks? I'll say that the book is interesting in some of the asides. I learned a few things about paintings that I didn't know while reading this book, uh, which was kind of an interesting thing. Also, it's extremely well organized it has, like, a glossary, and it warns you that it has a glossary. <laughs> and it's actually laid out really well and a lot of production effort into it. So uh, I, I know you mentioned that you were kind of trying out the Lean Pub system, and uh, I would say you managed to use it to great effect. It was well-received. Except for no index. <laughs> Except for no index, right, yeah. And I don't think there will ever be an index because it's too hard. Right. Uh, yeah. And professional publishing companies, you know, they spend massive amounts of money uh, to get people to spend massive yes. amounts of time to go through and create the index because it's horrible. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Avdi, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I have a couple of blog series to pick today. First one is a blog series by Julia Evans 
and she's documenting the process of, uh, I believe, building a kernel uh, in the Rust programming language. And it is a fascinating deep dive into what it's like to program when you have absolutely nothing to work with. You know, no <laughs> runtime, no operating system, no nothing. Just, you know, putting your, your interrupt vectors into the right location in RAM and hoping that something happens when, when you hit a key and that kind of thing. Definitely reminds me of why I don't do that stuff anymore. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a really great uh, it's a really great introduction to that kind of that whole mode of thinking uh, if you've never touched the the bare metal before. And another really cool blog series that I was turned on to recently is this Jepson blog series by Afer Afer. I'm not sure a p h y r dot com, and then it's slash tag slash Jepson. And it's a, it's this long series of blog articles where various, uh, SQL, but particularly various NoSQL data stores are kind of put through their paces. And particularly there, they are subjected to a net split, a, a partition, sorry, between networks. And then it examines their, their properties, you know, how they behave when that happens. And I've learned so much about the theory behind distributed systems and distributed system consistency and, and about the failure modes that people don't often think about. Uh, I just, I highly, highly recommend this series. I have not finished it yet, but I've enjoyed each article that I've read. It'll force you to think about the stuff that normally you just try to sort of shove under the bed and not think about in hopes that it won't happen. Uh, because, you know, this is the stuff that when it does go wrong, very often it goes wrong in ways that you didn't expect because you didn't realize exactly what sort of consistency properties your distributed data store actually has. So very highly recommended. All right, James, what are your picks? So uh, just two. Uh, one, I saw this interesting hack is uh, what I'll call it and what it calls itself. Xavier Noria, I think is how you say his name. I'm sorry if I messed that up. Did his talk at Baruco 2012 in a terminal and using this script that he basically calls terminal keynote. Uh, and it, it turns your terminal into a, you know, typical slide sharing uh, style application. And it's, uh, you know, the code's kind of crufty. If you look at the examples, uh, a lot of things end up being in, uh, strings and stuff, but still, it's an interesting uh, example of just you know how how you could do this. How how would you turn your uh, terminal into a kind of uh, keynotey type thing? And uh, just neat for getting ideas, and I enjoyed that. Uh, the other pick is uh, I've been playing a lot of games because I'm on vacation, like I said, and one of the ones I'm really enjoying is Desktop Dungeons. It's kind of a puzzle game where uh, it's a kind of almost a roguelike dungeon crawler, but uh, it's all about puzzles. So you have to balance, uh, like, exploring the dungeon is how you heal. So you have to uh, balance, you know, exploring to find new bad guys that you could potentially take with your, you know, stealing from your healing potential when you're actually fighting uh, stuff and calculating all that out to maximum benefit is tricky and fun. Uh, so I've been enjoying that game a lot. It's also really tough. So uh, if you enjoy that that tough aspect of it, that's one of the things I've been playing. Those are my picks. Awesome. 
All right, I'm going to give a couple of picks here. The first one that I'm going to pick is a little article I found. It was driving me crazy every time I'd move something around on my computer or delete or empty the trash or things like that. It would make the noises. And I like having my computer not make noises. And so uh, I found a little article that shows you how to turn that off. It's just an option in your settings. I just didn't know that it was there. Another pick that I have is RSpec mode. And this was uh, brought to my attention by one of my subcontractors. And uh, he, you know, every time I'd pair with him, uh, he'd he'd uh, be using it on his setup. And it was just really convenient to be able to just hit a couple of keys and have it run the specs. And so I've really been enjoying that. And then the last one that I've, uh, I'm going to pick is something that I'm going to be trying out here pretty quickly. I've been looking for an alternative to go to meeting because it doesn't work on Linux. And it seems like every time I do one of my courses, somebody is on Linux and I hate making them, you know, use a Windows VM or just dial in and not be able to see the slides or what have you. And so, uh, I looked at TeamViewer, but it just doesn't quite fit my needs. Um, even if I buy a license, it just, it doesn't have enough seats for enough people. And it's, it's pretty expensive, but I don't have to pay for it once. So I kind of weighed that against some of the other options. And then somebody pointed me to Fusebox and Fusebox, F-U-Z-E box is kind of a go to meeting alternative. Um, except it's much less expensive and gives you a lot more seats. So I'm, I'm going to be trying them out and see what I think there. I didn't go with uh, Google Hangouts is the other one that people keep telling me about just because I'm not quite sure how to make the Hangout private and things like that. And I'm looking for something just a little bit more professional than that. So anyway, those are my picks. And Brian, what are your picks? My picks are uh, really two categories. Um, I always like uh, things that claim everything I know was wrong. And here are two picks of two such categories. I once heard somebody say that the only purpose of his body was to keep his brain from falling onto the floor. (laughs) And and we in uh, software people tend to think of ourselves as being effectively a brain in a vat. And that appears to be rather untrue uh, when it comes to a lot of perception and thinking. And there's a field called embodied cognition that talks about how cognition and perception is an interplay between the body and the mind and the environment. And so what I've prepared here is there's a blog from a couple of psychologists who are embodied cognition people that I think forms a nice introduction. It's, it's, I stumbled across it. That's where I learned this stuff. There's a popularization of, by a, a woman named called Beyond the Brain. And if you want to get into uh, the really nitty-gritty stuff, there's a book called The Ecological Approach to Visual Perception. And it, it's fascinating to realize, at least uh, according to this person, how much the, the characteristics of the environment inform what it is that we see in the environment. So that's one topic. Another topic is something that sort of bugs me a lot of times is that people in software tend to make a big deal about science and the scientific method. 
And there's a, a reasonable argument to be made that a lot of what makes science work is, in fact, completely independent of what we think of as the right way to do science. And so I've been dabbling in this for a number of years. There's a particular author named Bruno Latour who has been doing work on this for a long time and he is the uh, founder of something that's called actor network theory and there are two books of his that I that I think I recommend one is called laboratory life it's his first book and that uh, it was him uh, he acted as an anthropologist going to visit a strange tribe with their strange customs not speaking the language and trying to figure out what they were doing and uh, except the tribe he was visiting was the Jonas Salk Institute of Biochemistry. And he was a French philosophy major trying to go there and figure out what are these people actually doing. And it's really fascinating to look at how that works. And another book of his, which I think is the clearest explanation, at least of the early kind of uh, actor network theory is a book called Science in Action, How to Follow Engineers and Scientists Through Society. And it's, it's just such a completely different way of looking at something that we're so convinced we already understand that I like to recommend it to people. I also, I gave a talk on this at Uppsala a long time ago, and I wrote up a set of blog posts where, which sort of recapitulated that talk, and I will also uh, send links to those blog posts. That is awesome. I think you just filled up my reading list for a while. Good. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Brian, and thanks for writing the book. Oh, thank you for having me. And... Yeah, thanks, Brian. It was great. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, well, I will be two minutes late to the stand-up, and they will give me hell about it, but that's pretty good, I think. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. I'll blame Skype. There you go. That's right. Don't let us keep you. Okay. Feel free to run off. Sorry we took so long. Uh, talk to you later. Yep. Bye. Bye. Before Bye. we close out this episode, though, let's talk about our next book, can we? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so we have decided that next we will read Ruby Under the Microscope from Pat Shaughnessy. So we've not mm -hmm. yet talked to Pat about being on the show, but we will definitely get on that. Um, and we don't know, you know, the date for all of that yet, but uh, that's coming soon. We will try to get discounts and stuff for the listeners as well. But yeah, that's the book if you want to go ahead and get a jump on it. All right. Also want to remind people about uh, Ruby Rogues Parlay. You can go sign up for that on the website. And I think that's it. So we'll wrap this up and we'll catch you all next week.